Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week, as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the rise of state censorship, the Rwanda migration plan and Wimbledon's ban on Russian tennis players. Britain seems to be becoming a more censorious country every day. Increasingly, we're seeing people being arrested and even imprisoned for expressing offensive opinions. So this week, a man called Paul Buschetti was sent down for 10 weeks for sharing an offensive video of the Grenfell Tower. Tom, what have you made of this case? It's a bit of a blast from the past, this one, because it relates to a video that was circulated in 2018, mm. um, where, as you say, um, this gentleman and his friends at a fireworks party were burning an effigy of Grenfell Tower. Um, in the video itself, you can also hear people making racist comments. Um, and it was distributed in private WhatsApp groups. It ended up going up on YouTube, went viral. And as a consequence of this, he was charged under the Communications Act with essentially distributing, sending a grossly offensive um, video. Originally, he was acquitted, but so this is a kind of overturning of that original that original ruling. But it's interesting because these these sorts of stories aren't new. We've been talking mm. about them for a very long time. Um, they've been piling up, but I just don't think we should let any of them get away from us. I mean, I think it's fair to say that this gentleman and probably his friends are prized dickheads, but it shouldn't be illegal to be a prized dickhead in, yeah. my, in my view. And these stories are just mounting up. I mean, we've talked a fair bit about them on the show in recent years, but particularly under this piece of legislation, the Communications Act, there have just been scores and scores and scores of cases of people either actually being sent to prison or in the, as in this case, kind of narrowly avoiding it for sending what is deemed to be grossly offensive. A term which is so vague it's open to almost any form of interpretation and whilst um, there's actually in the online safety bill that we're going to talk about in a little bit this particular provision is going to be repealed it looks like it's going to be um, replaced by a measure which would be potentially even worse but this is just what we've got used to in this country unfortunately it is we do live in a country in which it's potentially illegal to make offensive in some cases like this genuinely offensive jokes and comments and I think we just can't get used to that, really, although it feels like we have, you know. As you say, Tom, it's not a one-off. I mean, even in recent weeks, we've had, um, you know, teenagers who sent racist tweets using the N-word, um, given prison sentences. I mean, again, you know, this is offensive, but mm. in a free society, we surely have, we're supposed to have the right to be offensive. Equally, there was a, a man in Scotland who um, sent rude tweets about Captain Tom, you know, mocking him on his death and he was just spared a, a jail sentence. I mean, Ella, as, as well as this, we've, we're also getting people tangled up in, you know, various, under various hate speech laws. There are non-crime hate incidents. It seems as if everything, you know, every area of speech is now being policed by the actual police. Yeah. And the whole point about judging what is grossly offensive is that it's obviously subjective. Mm. So, I mean, you know, there are some, like the video of the burning the Grenfell, um, tower effigy. I mean, I think it would be hard pressed to find someone who didn't see that as 
are very unkind at the best. Um, but the, you know, there have been incidents of, I remember seeing a picture of two girls going to a fancy dress party dressed as the Twin Towers. And, you know, a lot of, as we know, with the whole saga about Jimmy Carr's joke recently, the whole nature of a lot of comedy is it, that it does push the boundaries sometimes and sometimes it steps over them. But the idea that it should be made illegal seems strange when, you know, if something is said or done that's a, that is offensive, mm. what does making it illegal do? Mm. You know, there's this sort of very infantile approach to the law, which we're beginning to de develop, that's suggesting that every time you feel hurt by something, you need to find a lawyer or a judge to solve your problem rather than either interacting with that person or ignoring it. And that has real ramifications bringing in the kind of the, you know, very clunky and slow and punitive legal system into what is the social realm of how we interact with each other. There was, I remember saying it at the time, I think we actually discussed it on a podcast back then, is that has no one ever been to Lewis Bonfire, which is this very archaic old um, bonfire ceremony in um, down in Sussex, where they burn all kinds of effigies. Mm. It, Lewis has a checkered past, let's put it that way, particularly when it comes to racism. But the people go and they get offended, but they, you know, no one dies you know, unless they stand too close to a firecracker and it's all fine. And there's a similar kind of, there's an adult approach to it, which is, I think, lacking in these cases of it's often not um, necessarily that the, the people who suffered in the Grenfell tragedy were forefronting this. I remember looking at the story and actually a lot of the outrage was caused by people online mm. who, okay, maybe were showing solidarity with the Grenfell victims and their families, but there was this kind of desire to cook up outrage completely unlinked to what actually happened in that tragic event. So it's just all a bit it's all a bit childish because you think what really is going to happen if you make all of this illegal? Do you think people are going to start being nice yeah. to each other? That's not how social interaction works. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is one of the things about censorship, isn't it? Is that it's kind of emotionally comforting to feel that, like you're doing something in relation to this tragedy or in relation to the scourge of racism in general, but what does it actually achieve? I mean, Julia Hartley Brewer, friend of the show, made this point on Twitter yesterday, which is to say that, you know, no one has faced justice over their role in the cladding scandal, mm. you know, which led, to the horrors of Grenfell Tower. And yet there's something almost emotionally satisfying about um, this particular individual, you know, having his own brush with the law over this. I think this particular case and others like it also raise really um, deeper concerning questions about private speech yeah. as well, because there's this really wobbly line appearing, especially when you're talking about kind of online communications. Because in this case, this particular video, there's actually two and there's some discussion in the trial as to which one it was, but anyway, um, were as I say, circulated in private WhatsApp groups and then it ended up being put on the broader internet. There was also a case last year, which I think we also talked about, where you had one gentleman basically making a racist video about Pretty Patel. Hmm. Um, he posts it to like a private Snapchat group and then someone he knows reposts it to another private Snapchat group and then somewhere along this line it ends up on the broader internet. And then both of them, incidentally, the one who made it and then the one who just passed it on, ended up actually going to prison in that case. I think it was 10 and 6 weeks respectively. Here you have this really fuzzy line between private and public speech as well. And obviously up in Scotland, they've already completely eroded that boundary yeah. with their hate crime bill. But still, it just shows how you this kind of creeping authoritarianism is getting more and more serious and how interestingly, I know we're going to come on to this, the fact that you have a conservative government which is increasingly trying to kind of lean in to some of these issues around freedom of speech to a certain extent around the idea that certain things that you can't say the need to push back for liberal values against the kind of 
you know, a liberal left and all the rest of it. But when push comes to shove, they really don't mean it. They like it for a bit of culture war panto. But when it comes to the principles involved, they're nowhere near as, you know, they're nowhere to be seen on these questions, definitely. Yeah, as you, as you suggest, you know, the we have the online safety bill coming down the track. Now, this had its second reading um, earlier this week in, in Parliament. Um, there seems to be almost no opposition to it from within Parliament or from within politics. Um, the Labour Party is complaining that it's too soft and doesn't tackle, you know, certain forms of disinformation hard enough. Um, I mean, Tom, explain a bit about this bill and how potentially terrifying it is for our freedoms. Well, there, there's a lot to it. It's one of those ones that there's so many different kind of concerns and uh, in some cases kind of moral panics which have been attached to it in certain respects. But I think some of the core things that people are deeply concerned about is the duty that's being put on social media firms to clamp down on what is called legal but harmful content, mm. which is quite a kind of Orwellian concept in and of itself. There's also been a lot of concerns raised about uh, the way in which it could affect online encryption because of the fact that, again, there's a duty for um, services, even if they're encrypted services, it seems like, to clamp down on even the legal content. But obviously that would imply them creating some sort of backdoor between the two devices that are yeah. sharing the encrypted content, which basically means you don't have <laughs> encrypted content. Um, and it's, again, just part of this panic about freedom of speech online, essentially, that's been raging for some time. Now, obviously, that can be talked about about things that are genuinely concerning, whether it's kind of the distribution of threats or content which might be deemed harmful to children. But ultimately, this is about treating all of us like children, about creating um, more and more pressure on social media firms, essentially, to censor speech. And again, you just have this bizarre cognitive dissonance where you have, particularly the kind of elements of the Conservative Party, at least, will from time to time kind of posture against big tech censorship. But what they're effectively doing is incentivizing more big tech mm. censorship. Um, it, it will end up with more of it as a kind of, especially the history of any laws like this in relation to the internet and content is that it just creates a lot of knee-jerk censorship for the needs of trying to be compliant and the free speech protections in the bill such as they are, are uh, not really worth the paper they're written on. So it's really, really concerning. And I think it's just another example of how free speech has continued to be encroached upon. And whilst, you know, as part of this bill, it looks like the grossly offensive thing from the Communications Act is going, it's being replaced by all kinds of other concerning measures that we've been, that again, you, you're seeing opposition to it from outside Parliament, but inside of it is feeble, definitely. Yeah, I mean, this is just a disaster for internet freedom and free speech online. Yeah, it, that quite simply it is a disaster and there is nothing redeeming about it. I mean, it's been, I mean, sort of, humorous in a way, depressingly funny, to watch Nadine Dorries and other ministers tie themselves in knots over the last um, uh, last week in the discussion about this, you know, the suggestion that we're going to ask big tech and, you know, online platforms to censor disinformation, but all oh, there's a problem because they'll start censoring journalism and that's a free speech problem. So don't worry, we've put in a provision for an appeals process and then, you know, you have a minister um, talking to the Daily Mail this week saying, well, I think we should make um you know tech giants have an algorithm czar who comes <laughs> and check it's like christ you're just this is like layer upon layer upon layer of bureaucracy a lot but of it's, it's being made up as it goes along yeah, as well it's you know, just this. well it's just like pull an idea out of a hat minister yeah. and go with it and but the problem is it's not benign bureaucracy it all is adding to this idea that the um that what we sort of know to be true that twitter in particular but also facebook for different it's you know interesting that different groups in, in society tend to discuss politics on Facebook and different groups discuss it on Twitter, Twitter being a more kind of middle class um, zone, that 
this thing that we understand to now be a public square, more poignantly after the pandemic, and this is where politicians talk most openly. This mm. is where a lot of commentary happens. If you want to know what's going on in the world, you kind of have to be on Twitter. Um, it's where, you know, like the president makes, you know, in, in previous years has announced policy on there and things like that. That that isn't a public square anymore. It's not free. And that actually it's going to be controlled not just by big tech, but governments and czars here and czars there. And it's a nightmare. Um, the I think the point about children is really important. And Matthew Lesh wrote an article on Spike for this about this this week, which is that it's a really cynical move by the Tories to try and make this all about children. Um, Nadine Dorries wrote an article for The Telegraph with Rachel D'Souza this week announcing that, you know, the UK is going to be the safest place for kids online. This is all about stopping bullying. And it's not. I mean, it's just, just a lie to suggest that this is all about um, making kids safe. I mean, we can have a whole nother debate about the fact that, you know, the idea that bullying will disappear because you put in something, you make um, tech giants um, more censorious is a nonsense. But it's, um, and Matthew makes this point, it's really infantilizing to suggest that mm. this adult thing that was created by adults for adults, social media and in particular Twitter, needs to be a child-friendly space. It, mm. it isn't. It's not what it's there for. Yeah. And its political worth means that it's an adult space. So not being able to make those differentiations just shows that the Tories are trying to win this kind of cheap populist kind of move of like, oh, it's all for the kids and that we all want to keep the kids safe. And it's really insulting, mm. actually. I mean, the, the age verification thing, I think is interesting because it just demonstrates also how difficult regulating the internet is. I mean, I'm not to say that you should do it as a slam dog argument against anything, but it's just to say you have a bunch of people who really don't understand how these things work, yeah. you know, making policy. And the age verification is a good idea. I mean, it is a good example rather because this is a kind of rehashing of when they were trying to create age verification for things like porn websites. Mm. The idea that they ended up with at one point was that you would go to a news agent to purchase <laughs> it, which just, I think, shows the kind of level of te technological kind of literacy mm. that we're dealing with aside from the uh, more principled issues around <laughs> freedom of speech and everything else. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. So last week, the UK government announced its new plan for migration. The idea is to send asylum seekers to Rwanda to be processed. Now, I think it's fair to say that this policy was met with um, almost wall-to-wall condemnation. We even had the Archbishop of Canterbury use his you know, Easter Sunday sermon to denounce the plan. It's been denounced by the Labour Party and even many people within the Home Office, the civil servants supposedly in charge of implementing the plan have, have um, come out against it. I mean, Tom, what have you made of that kind of uh, reaction? I think the reaction is, is really, really troubling, regardless of what you feel about the plan itself, mm. which I'm not a fan of. We can get into that. But it was just the kind of the knee jerk and kind of instant response, which is to say essentially this, this is, this can't happen. Mm. It wasn't just condemning it. I mean, it's, it's fascinating that you've got, you know, the, the church <laughs> coming out and condemning a government policy. That seems to me a outrageous interference really. But at the same time, you also have again, the kind of general legal establishment saying this is going to be held up in the courts. It's never going to happen. The house of Lords naturally threatening to get involved. Um, the response from the civil service, which is almost like they will refuse to work on it and all the mm. rest of it. And I think this is one of the things that it's, it touches on a key issue in the immigration debate that those of us who are in favour of immigration really need to take seriously, which is the fact that to be in favour of people being able to seek asylum here 
or to just come here to work. I mean, that's one of the great um, kind of obfuscating things about this discussion is people act as if everyone who's coming on small boats, et cetera, are refugees. Many of them are economic migrants and we should be serious about that. But regardless, of, you know, even if you support their rights in terms of being able to come here and, and work here and thrive here and all the rest of it, you have to win that as a democratic argument. Yeah. And there's a, at the moment, there's just a, a hiding behind two things, just general kind of moralism as if to say you're a horrible person if you, <laughs> if you don't necessarily agree with us. And then again, a kind of recourse to legalism, which is just to say this, this isn't allowed to happen um, because of it will be held up in the courts that it's not going to meet our international obligations in relation to asylum seekers and all the rest of it. And as a consequence of that, you don't have the discussion, which is necessary to do something like offer more safe and legal routes or any, frankly, safe or legal yeah. routes for people outside the country to be able to claim asylum because you're too busy just saying that it's not going to happen or saying that anyone who supports it is some sort of crazy proto-fascist, which is what we've seen in the past few days. And I think that's part of the problem. And and there was one bit in Boris Johnson's speech in Kent, which I think really touched on this particular issue where he said, you know, there are people who, you know, if you're going to make a case for more immigration, come out and make it, but people are hiding behind again some of these kind of yeah. these legal hurdles and all the rest of it. And I think he does have a point there, unfortunately. Ella, I mean, what role do you think sort of Boris and, you know, almost like Boris derangement syndrome and Brexit bashing is playing mm. in this because, you know, it was only a couple of years ago when, you know, quite outrageously, the UK Home Office was deporting black British citizens. Mm. And I don't recall them saying we're going to go on strike over this or, mm. you know, we're, th this has got to be held up. It, it didn't cause that much outrage internally, although it did obviously cause public outrage. I don't recall any of the outrage over the many... EU migrant policies that we have were implicated in when we were inside the European Union. I mean, so is there a, it's just an element of, um, you know, things just get over the top when they involve Boris or Brexit. I think it's really important to mention what that, you know, Boris, Boris's Rwanda policy is pretty much borrowing out of the EU's playbook. I mean, it's uh, not very far from, and you made this point in your article this week, Fraser, about the EU's uh, negotiations with Gaddafi um, mm. in, in exchange for um, kind of lifting of sanctions and a bit of bunging a bit of money here or there. Um, basically, the institution of Libyan uh, camps where migrants were kept, um, Gaddafi even basically threatened the EU at one point, blackmailed them saying, I'm going to turn Europe black unless you send more money. Mm. Um, and while that didn't quite happen, as you make the point in your article, he, you know, they certainly listened to him. Uh, there wasn't the kind of outrage that certainly, I don't, you know, uh, Welby wasn't the archbishop then, but the, the church yeah. didn't come out and say anything about that. Similar thing happened in relation to Turkey with Erdogan being paid in this kind of very sort of backhanded way to, um, erect, you know, erect walls. And that was at the time when Trump was being pillarized for talking about walls and keeping Syrians out. So this is, this is a mild version of what's mm. already been happening in Europe over the last 10, 15 years longer. So that kind of hypocrisy has to be pointed out. But it's also the case that the, you know, it's a very important issue for lots of people like it or loathe it, that post-Brexit, and actually this is important, that post-Brexit, the discussion about controlling borders, not closing them or opening them, but having a sense of control over them in terms of not being bound by um, EU rules, was very important for a lot of people, not just people along the Kent coast. And there, you know, even though I kind of get very frustrated by the hype around how many people turn up in boats, you know, it, it, comparatively, it really isn't that much. 
it is still the case that if you are a nation that has people consistently breaking the rules of illegal uh, coming in through illegal means, you have to do something. Especially when people are dying in the yeah, tunnel. Exactly. And, yeah, exactly. And but but it's just that there's so much disingenuous going disingenuousness going on. Uh, you know, right wingers have been all over the media in the last week talking about the fact that if you don't support the Rwanda policy, you just want to see people drown, and that's that's frankly bollocks. Because if there's lots of other ways you could do with it, put on a ferry, put them, you know, put on planes. If you, the thing you care about is safe routes, put on safe routes. That's obviously not what people care about. What people care about is the question of illegal immigration. And if you wanted to fix that, you wouldn't implement this Rwanda policy. You'd fix the creaking system of asylum that is purposefully made obfuscated and difficult. So a kind of cleanup of the system would do a lot. I mean, the fact that uh, that Boris can now go to India and say, oh, well, we need some more workers. So why don't a few of you come along, which just proves that the whole nature of the way in which they've organized the immigration system, both for economic migrants and for refugees is just, you know, is based on the whims of who you make trade deals with, which, you know, as I've already said, is how many countries do. It's how the EU does it. But let's be upfront about that. At the moment, we're having this kind of moral um, fake battle about whether or not you care about people dying in the sea when actually there's a much more serious element to this. I think that the point about um, Boris's trip to India is interesting because also the immigration figures for the first year, I guess, of the kind of formally post Brexit points based immigration system are in and um immigration's up. I think about about twenty five percent. Might be wrong about that. And of course, um it's where we're seeing these sharp rises are for are from places like India. That's mm. from places where previously it was so much more difficult to come to the United Kingdom, even if you had a lot of family links here. Yeah. Um, because of the countries that historically we've obviously had a lot to do with um, for good and for real. And I think this is the thing that really gets to grips about this idea that the British public is just really xenophobic and they just do not like outsiders. I mean, they've, again, people seem to be broadly happy with this particular policy. Incidentally, when Yuga did a snap poll about the Rwanda policy and this kind of outsourcing arm's length approach to the issue of asylum and legal immigration, again, there was actually more people opposed it than supported it. And that was despite the fact that the question seemed to imply, as was kind of implied early on, that this was about, you know, sorting the claims there rather than yeah. them actually just being able to apply for asylum in Rwanda and stay there, as it has it now been elucidated. The same thing happened with Windrush. When there was that YouGov poll, I remember us talking about it, that said that there was like 70% or more people were like, what yeah. are you doing? And I think Don't like, do this. And older people more than younger people yeah. were concerned about it, and, but everyone was, obviously. And it just... It just completely gives a lie to the fact that because people want control over borders and they mm. don't like a kind of sense of lawlessness and they don't like a sense of people just being able to leak through the borders and all the rest of it, that doesn't mean that they're anti-immigration. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something which really needs to be teased out as well as all the bad faith in this discussion. Because I think Ella's point about, if anything, this is at least what's on paper here is a much milder version of what the EU's been doing. The silence of the Remainers on that is crazy. I mean, it wasn't just that they were paying Gaddafi to stop migrants from, in his words, turning Europe black was the yeah. way in which he, he put it. Um, but when Gaddafi fell, they started playing, paying warlords to do this <laughs> job. And again, what, you know, in terms of these, in terms of what's being proposed here, it's miles away from that. But again, I think it just shows the fact, and this is to the detriment of all sides in this debate, I think, it's just become part of a culture war in yeah. some respects, particularly with the pro-migration side. It's a way in which they demonstrate that they are a good person rather than actually having to convince anyone or make a coherent argument. And that, I think, has really bedeviled our discussion, particularly when, you know, there's a world to win. You have a public that are open to immigration. It's just they don't want it to be something that is decided over their heads and they have no control over. And finally, let's talk about Wimbledon. So Wimbledon has announced that it's going to ban 
Russian and Belarusian players uh, from this summer's tournament. It says it wants to limit the influence of Russia. Tom, that's a bit of a pompous statement from a kind of sporting body, isn't it? Oh no, it's absurd. I mean, that's the thing about all of these bans and boycotts, whether it's Russian sportsmen or artists or whatever else, is that the the fundamental kind of premise of all of it is ridiculous. Like the mm. idea that um, making sure that Daniel Medvedev can't compete at this year's Wimbledon will shift the dial in any meaningful sense in this war in Ukraine is ridiculous. But it's not just ridiculous, it's vindictive and it's discriminatory and it's really ugly. And you just wonder how we get got into a situation in which these kinds of decisions are almost common sense. Mm. I mean, the um, All England Club, the organisers of Wimbledon, are um, out in front on this issue, if you like. Other tennis tours have just allowed Russian players to compete under kind of on neutral status, essentially. Um, But at the same time, you know, this is something that we've seen across the board. It's There's just been this kind of like contagion of Russophobia. And it's interesting because on the one hand, people are saying, well, you know, you can kind of understand that there might be this kind of backlash, this kind of overreaction, overcorrection, whatever you want to call it. If you take someone like Wimbledon, this is the first time they've ever put kind of nation-specific bans in place since the aftermath of the Second World War when Germans and um, Japanese players weren't allowed to compete all the way through apartheid. South African players could come and play. So this is a, this is a new move. And mm. it, even up until relatively recently, it was kind of understood that on the kind of principle basis, you don't want to conflate individuals with the crimes of their nation or their leadership. Um, but it was also a kind of case that I think a lot of, there was a sense that you couldn't really be drawn into controversy. You didn't want to be drawn into politics or whatever. Now, you know, th- a lot of that happened anyway. It's yeah. kind of impossible to separate sports from politics in many respects. These people live in the world, they have opinions and all the rest of it. But at the same time, because there is this impetus towards virtue signaling at all times, then these decisions can't help but be politicised. The issue is at this point, to be virtuous is also to be incredibly vindictive. Yeah. Um, but that that's the um, situation we find ourselves in, unfortunately. I mean, Ella, I mean, you have someone like Andre Rublev, the, I think he's the men's uh, number eight tennis star. And recently, you know, he wrote on a camera, no, no more war. I mean, even someone like that is banned by this policy. Mm. Yeah, but just it shows how superficial it is, which is it's not actually about... Um, and we made this point when all the kind of Russophobia stuff was kicking off uh, a number of weeks ago. It's not actually about taking a principled stand of saying, how can we use this uh, this thing, uh, Wimbledon, this sporting event, to send a message, if that's what we want to do, um, to you know Russians who oppose Putin and to Ukrainians. What's the best way to do that? Which would And the best way to do that would be to say, look at this guy, isn't he great? Isn't he brave, actually, to do something like that, especially being... Um, from a country that is currently, you know, locking up its citizens for opening their mouth about anything in relation to the war. Um, but instead, they t- it's nothing to do with that. It's really about, as Tom says, a kind of virtue signaling exercise in which it takes the lazy option of saying, rather than get into any kind of nuanced discussion about a differentiation between a player and their country, we're just going to ban it. And it benefits no one. I mean, it's, it is really important to say that there has been widespread outrage about this and people have criticised um, the official body for deciding to do this and, and, you know, huge tennis stars like Martina Navratilova coming out and saying, hang on a minute, there have been times in history where things have, you know, nations have acted wrong, wrongly and there has been moral questions at stake. But, you know, sport is meant to be obviously, you know, on, on a kind of international basis, whether it's the World Cup or anything, you you are representing your country as a, as a player. 
But there is, you know, that doesn't mean that you sign up to every single policy mm. that your nation holds or the current government holds of that nation. I mean, I'm not comparing Le Pen to Putin at all. I'm not, I'm not. But say uh, the French election goes Le Pen's way, is every cultural or sporting figure in France then either faced with having to spend all their time coming out and denouncing her all the time or being just assumed that they're a fan? That's a very sort of stupid way of looking at how people relate to their countries and you don't become a slave to your nation's policies just because you're from that nation. So it's a it, all around a depressing picture, but it, it is the case that you can't help thinking that there's not just a kind of virtue signaling element to this, but also a kind of real moral cowardice, because while lots of these institutions and bodies have a lot to say about who gets to play in their game, you wouldn't catch them coming out and saying, well, I think we should arm Ukraine more heavily or like, you know, I think we should, you know, up the Ukrainian fighters or making any kind of overt political statement like that. So it's a, it's a way of sort of covering yourself that you've said something about the war while actually not really saying anything about the war at all. And Tom, I mean, it's never really a good idea to mix uh, the culture war and real war mm. anyway, is it? No, not at all. And I think that <laughs> the combination of those two things has confused a hell of a lot of people or made them say come out and say things that they probably shouldn't <laughs> in the midst of this particular conflict. It's also worth pointing out that this particular decision also has the kind of dead hand of Nadine Dorries on it um, mm. in, in terms of the reporting according to the Times. Uh, there's been kind of months of negotiation, essentially, or at least discussions um, between her department, DCMS, and um, the All England Club in relation to what should happen. Apparently at one point, and a minister floated this a month or so ago, there was this suggestion that uh, Russian and Belarusians would be able to play, but they would have to first sign a kind of private uh, declaration that they wouldn't express any kind of support for the for the war or anything particularly provocative mm. in private. And I just think it's really striking that you have moves like this, which are seen as part of us kind of standing up for Western values, for liberalism, for all the rest of it. But it basically amounts to banning people on account of where they were born mm. and failing that, demanding that they sign some sort of um, denunciation of their own country. So I think people, the Wimbledon organisers and DCMS could do well to pick up a history book if that's actually what they think that they're doing in that respect. But it's also the case that if you get into a situation which you're saying politics can't, you know, you have to sign to say that you won't, I don't know, wear a Z or something yeah. that some people have done in some sporting occasion. A little gymnast. Yeah. yeah mm -hmm. that, if, that if you're saying this isn't allowed, then... What happens, you can see people making the argument of, well, then why do the footballers in the World Cup take the knee? Or why did Colin Kaepernick, why is it okay in that respect? Because, you know, it should it be allowed for you to denounce your nation and make a political statement that says you think, you know, they're racist or whatever, or or even in the Olympics um, during the civil rights movement where people got up and did the, the fist on the Olympic podium. That's fine. But if you support your nation in a, you know, let, no bones about it, anything that's terrible, a Russian invasion of Ukraine, then that's not allowed. Well, isn't the whole point about sport that you have quite solid rules that are fair and that you don't um, allow people to make kind of political mm. or subjective judgments? So they're just getting themselves in the hot water, left, right, and centre. Never mind the fact that there is no, as far as I can tell from any of the players, particularly the one who wrote no more war, please on the camera. Yeah. It's not like there's any danger of anyone getting up in mm -hmm. a kind of leotard with a Z emblazoned mm. on it. It's not going to happen. And it, I think it's important because there's been a lot of people who would pr probably usually support say our arguments around freedom of speech or boycotts or whatever, who have just, you know, completely flaked on this particular one again, because it's kind of emotionally satisfying for them, mm. I guess, to sort of ban Russians in response to, of course, what is a brutal 
an imperialistic invasion of Ukraine. But it's it's so important to underline, like the idea of banning that tennis player who wrote that anti-war message on a, on a camera is going to do anything to change this. The idea that how well someone like Medvedev does in Wimbledon this year is going to somehow, um, again, lend all this esteem to the nation in which he just happens to come from. And at the same time, we are burnishing the Kremlin narrative, mm. you know, which is to say that they don't just support the Ukrainians in the West. They just hate you and they hate me. They hate Russians. They want to see us wiped off the map. That's why they're doing all of this. So if the aim of Wimbledon and its organisers was to prove Putin right on that score, then mission accomplished, I guess. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.